Hi, welcome to Season 3 of the Pictures Out There podcast series. This is chat number 12. Today's chat topics include Tom Friedman, an updated golden rule, Pandora's Bach, being there, male loneliness, modern masculinity and feminism, and Mark Twain. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Well, thank you, Candy, for that kind introduction. This is Lee. And this is Dave. Hey, and welcome back to the Pictures Out There podcast series. We would like to extend a welcome to our present audience. Hello, present audience. Our audience in years, decades, centuries, who knows, perhaps millennia from now. We think so. Our future AI audience, our future alien audience, our universal audience. We're glad to have you listening. Thanks for joining us. We like to begin these chats with these two questions for you to reflect on. What are your ideals and what are your pictures? We're going to be dealing with three really interesting articles that we came across in our podcast today. And before diving into the first topic, I'm going to mention something from the AI picture that's in the Pictures Out There book. In there, we proposed a new golden rule that said, do unto other people, animals, plants, and everything else that exists on this planet as we would wish intellectually superior intelligences to do unto us. In Ideals Out There, which is going to be published at the end of this year, there's a slightly revised amended new golden rule that's proposed, and that is do unto all other life forms as we would wish intellectually superior intelligences to do unto us. A bit simpler, and it includes, though, the planet, since our planet is certainly alive, right? And Mm -hmm. changing every day. Mm -hmm. And so in both of these statements, there is an urgent ask for a major improvement in our human behavior toward each other, toward all life forms, toward the planet, and certainly toward AI. Mm -hmm. And in our minds, that's required for a successful and optimal coexistence with AI going forward. This is a little setup here, Lee, that we're doing, and people will understand why we're saying this later on. That's right. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yes, absolutely. So let's turn our attention with that as background to a recent article by Tom Friedman in the New York Times which was headlined, We Are Opening the Lids on Two Giant Pandora's Boxes. Mm. Now, what the heck is a Pandora's box? We've heard that expression before. Merriam-Webster notes that it can be anything that looks ordinary, but may produce unpredictable, harmful results. So we've been thinking a lot about Pandora's boxes lately because we homo sapiens are doing something we've never done before. We're lifting the lids on two giant Pandora's boxes at the same time without any idea of what might come flying out. One of these Pandora boxes is labeled artificial intelligence, and it is exemplified by such things as chat, GPT, BARD, and AlphaFold, which testify to humanity's ability for the first time to manufacture something in a godlike way that approaches general intelligence, and it far exceeds the brain power with which we evolved naturally, says Friedman. Now, for this part of Tom Friedman's article, this first part, Lee, that you've just read, Pandora's box, as a term, lots of times is used to, to kind of strike a tone that is somewhere between cautiousness and just outright fear. Yes. You know, so it's an interesting choice that he's making to use that term 
but I think it is to get attention mm-hmm. and to say this is something where we need to be very, very careful with mm-hmm. it. Tom is certainly implying the first element of cautiousness, and we'll have to see as the article goes along to the degree to which he's trying to kind of strike a tone of fear. Yes, not. yes. So the other Pandora's box, going back now to the Friedman article I'm reading, is labeled climate change. And with it, we humans are for the first time driving ourselves in a godlike way from one climate epoch into another. Up to now, that power was largely confined to natural forces involving Earth's orbit around the sun. For me, this is Tom talking, the big question as we lift the lids simultaneously is, what kind of regulations and ethics must we put into place to manage what comes screaming out? Interesting choice of words there, Tom. Yes, screaming screaming out. Screaming, so uh, a little bit more maybe fear than cautiousness with that phrase. Right, and I wanted to uh, revisit a phrase he used there. What kind of regulations and ethics must we put in Ah. place? Well, I think you and I would advocate that ethics come first and regulations follow those ethics, right? Absolutely. But sometimes around something like climate change, you get what you can get, which means maybe regulations that are not all the way up to an ethical standard that we would uphold, but they do a little improvement. So I think that's why he's using them in conjunction. And lots of times we will equate ethics with our concept of ideals. Yes. And we would say, to your point, you put ideals in place first, first, you put ethics in place first, and then the regulations naturally follow. Yeah, the regulations just should be the operation of the ethics. Yes. So continuing with Friedman's article, there was a failure of imagination when social networks were unleashed and then a failure to responsibly respond to their unimagined consequences once they permeated the lives of billions of people. That was stated by Dobbs Seidman, the founder and chairman of the Howe Institute for Society. This gentleman, Seidman, continues, We lost a lot of time and our way in utopian thinking that only good things could come from social networks, from just connecting people and giving people a voice. We cannot afford similar failures when it comes to artificial intelligence. So there is an urgent imperative, it's both ethical and regulatory, that these artificial Artificial intelligence technology should only be used to complement and elevate what makes us uniquely human. Such things as our creativity, our curiosity, and at our best, our capacity for hope, ethics, empathy, grit, and collaborating with others. Yeah, Lee, my recollection is that he's right that when social networks came out, it just seemed like this completely good thing. Yes. And there wasn't really a cautiousness or a notion of trying to do some regulation up front, there absolutely is with AI. Yes. This is so much in the consciousness of people to try to get in front of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's Mm -hmm. one thought that occurred to me. The other is, it's an interesting question, have social networks been a net good or not? That's a very debatable point. It is. I guess I would say, right here now, looking back before they ever got created, I would say, I think Overall, they have been a net good, Mm -hmm. but there have certainly been some major negative consequences. But I would hope now that we are aware of those that the social network element can just be made better and better. Yeah. And now we have the experience of social media to inform us as we confront artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Okay. Continuing on with Tom's article, 
I asked James Manyika, who heads Google's technology and society team, as well as Google Research, where much of its AI innovation is conducted, for his thinking on AI's promise and challenge. Quote, we have to be bold and responsible at the same time, he said. The reason to be bold is that in so many different realms, AI has the potential to help people with everyday tasks and to tackle some of humanity's greatest challenges, like healthcare, for instance, and make new scientific discoveries and innovations and productivity gains that will lead to wider economic prosperity. It will do so, he added, by giving people everywhere access to the sum of the world's knowledge in their own language and their preferred mode of communication via text, speech, images, or code, delivered by smartphone, through television, radio, or ebook, a lot more people will be able to get the best assistance and the best answers to improve their lives. And Lee, it, AI is such an incredible opportunity yes. for humanity and for our world. Yeah, and I think he does a wonderful job there of describing all of the potential good that resides within it. Exactly. But he continues, he says, we also must be responsible, and he cites several concerns. First, these AI tools need to be fully aligned with humanity's goals. Secondly, in the wrong hands, these tools could do enormous harm, whether we're talking about spreading disinformation or perfectly faking things or hacking. And he states bad guys are always early adopters with new technologies. Lee, better goals. Fully aligned with humanity's goals. We need better goals. We need better pictures. pictures. We need better pictures. The stakes from not having great goals has never been higher. The stakes for not having great pictures has never, never been, been higher. higher. We can no longer afford to be reactive. We have to be proactive. Finally, the engineering is ahead of the science to some degree, Maunyika explained. That is, even the people building these so-called large language models that underlie products, they don't fully understand how they work and they don't understand the full extent of their capabilities. We can engineer extraordinarily capable AI systems that can be shown a few examples of arithmetic or a rare language or explanations of jokes, and then they start to do many more things with just those fragments astonishingly well. In other words, we don't fully understand how much more good stuff or bad stuff these systems can do. So we need some regulation but it needs to be done carefully and iteratively. We can't take a one-size-fits-all approach. Can we just go back, Lee, to the comment, we don't fully understand, understand how they work and the full extent of their capabilities. How often have there been human-created products in human history where we didn't know uh, how they work. Yeah. And this gets said a lot relative to AI. It's a very common phrase it is. that people are using and people are trying to get into consciousness. We're creating this, but now they're off and running and we don't exactly know what we're doing. This is, I think, the first time to my knowledge in human history that yeah. there is a quote human created set of products yeah, and the, we don't know how they work. The professional creators of this will say the genie's out of the bottle. And we don't know how large that genie is or what that genie might mutate into and doesn't, for, for good or bad. And doesn't that sound like a advanced intelligence? It sure does. That is off kind of figuring out its own thing. And I think, too, to the point of social media we talked about before, and we said we need some regulation, but it needs to be done carefully and iteratively, they said. We talked about the fact that we're not going to be able to predict 
everything that's going to happen right. with AI. Right. So the, the regulatory piece has to be this combination of trying to think of things in advance, mm-hmm. doing that thoughtfully, but then being really good and clean and crisp and reacting Yes. as the inevitable surprises mm-hmm. come up, mm-hmm. just like they did with social networks. Yeah. And the surprises with AI are probably going to be a lot, lot more. Yeah, so there has to be some elasticity and flexibility in those first regulations to permit the inevitable changes that are going to come. So here in the Friedman article, he says, why do we need regulation? He gives some examples. If you want to truly democratize AI, you might want to open source its code, but open sourcing can be exploited. What would ISIS do with the code? So you have to think about arms control. Another example. If you're worried that AI systems will will compound discrimination, privacy violations, and other divisive societal harms the way social networks do, you want regulations now. Another one. If you want to take advantage of all the productivity gains AI is expected to generate, you need to focus on creating new opportunities and safety nets for all the paralegals, researchers, financial advisors, translators, and rote workers who could be replaced tomorrow and maybe lawyers and coders tomorrow. If you're worried that AI is going to become super intelligent and start defining its own goals, Mm -hmm. irrespective of human harm, you want to stop it immediately. So again, this notion of we do our best up front and then are quick to adjust, but this last one, of course, start defining its own goals, Mm -hmm. maybe its own pictures. Yes. Uh, think about that golden rule that we talked about. So mm-hmm. interesting. Very, very provocative <laughs> stuff from Tom Friedman. So add it all up and it says one thing. We as a society are on the cusp of having to decide some very big trade-offs as we introduce generative AI. And government regulation alone is not going to save us. Friedman has a simple rule. The faster the pace of change and the more godlike powers we humans develop, the more everything old and slow matters more than ever. The more everything you learned in Sunday school or from wherever you draw ethical inspiration, it matters more than ever. Oh, Lee, that sounds like ideals. Deals. That sounds like ideals. So Tom is saying we need to have a simple rule. And it needs to be that we have ideals, and we do all of this on the basis of ideals. Maybe it's kind of an updated golden rule. Ah. Just saying. Could be. Could be. Friedman says the wider we scale artificial intelligence, the more the golden rule needs to scale. Do unto others as you would wish them to do unto you. Because given the increasingly godlike powers we're endowing ourselves with, we can all now do unto each other faster, cheaper, and deeper than ever before. So we'll repeat our revised golden rule. Do unto all life forms as we would wish intellectually superior intelligences to do unto us. And the question would be, do we have the required ideals, the humility, and the ability to change? We would say, we have the potential. Yes. We have the potential. You guys know, listening to us, we're optimists. Yes. And we do believe in humanity. We aren't there now. Right. We have to get there. Absolutely. Yeah. And we don't mean for this to be doom and gloom, as yeah, you said. Yeah. No, there, there is hope and there yeah. is potential here. But we got to do it. Yeah. Okay. So on with the Friedman article. Ditto when it comes to the climate. Pandora's box we're opening, shifting to his second one. As NASA explains on its website, in the last 800,000 years, there have been eight cycles of ice ages and warmer periods. 
The last ice age ended some 11,700 years ago, giving way to our current climate era known as the Holocene, meaning entirely recent, which was characterized by stable seasons that allowed for stable agriculture, the building of human communities, and ultimately civilization as we know it today. There is now an intense discussion among environmentalists and geological experts at the International Union of Geological Sciences, the professional organization responsible for defining Earth's geological and climate eras, about whether we humans have driven ourselves out of the Holocene into a new epoch called the Anthropocene. A new epoch? Yeah. Holy moly. I missed the last one 11,700 years ago, so I'll be interested to see what this new one holds in store. Uh, Friedman continues, Earth system scientists fear that this man-made epoch will have none of the predictable seasons of the Holocene. Farming, for example, could become a nightmare. But here's where AI could be our savior. By hastening breakthroughs in material science, in battery density, and fusion energy, and safe modular nuclear energy that enables humans to manage the impacts of climate change that are now unavoidable, and to avoid those that would be unmanageable if they were to occur. Makes me wonder, Lee, about how our living, breathing planet Earth would feel about any of these AI-driven changes. And hopefully we would say any AI-driven changes that are positive, that seem positive, would be done in harmony with Earth. Yes. And done with respect. Yes. Yeah. But if AI, continuing with the Friedman article, gives us a way to cushion the worst effects of climate change, if AI, in effect, gives us a do-over, we had better do it over right. That means with smart regulations to rapidly scale clean energy and with scaled sustainable values, unless we spread an ethic of conservation, a reverence for wild nature, and all that it provides us free, like clean air and clean water, we could end up in a world where people feel entitled to drive through the rainforest now that their Hummer is all electric. That can't happen. I love this point, Lee, because mm-hmm. it underscores that respect. I'd like to return to a point he made about ethic of conservation. A lot of times when we talk about ethics, we're talking about how to treat one another as people. Rarely do we talk about ethics when it comes to the environment. So I'm so glad that he selected that phrase. Absolutely. So continuing with the Friedman article, bottom line, these two big Pandora's boxes are being opened. God save us if we acquire godlike powers to part the Red Sea, but fail to scale the Ten Commandments. And I'm hearing ideals, ideals, ideals ideals. again. So to reiterate, in Ideals Out There, which is going to be published by the end of 2023, we have a new golden rule. Mm-hmm. Do unto all other life forms as we would wish intellectually superior intelligences to do unto us. Point being, it isn't enough to apply our current human ethical standards. Those standards themselves need to be raised. Our human culture needs to be better. We need to behave better with each other and with the other life forms we share the planet. We need a new picture for minimizing violence and for global and regional government. We need ideals of respect for every individual as a unique member of the global community and of helping one another. And we need a picture for equality for all. The pathway to optimizing AI in the future is really going to depend on humanity evolving now, urgently. 
toward a new set of pictures and ideals. We may resist doing that initially, but we won't have much choice because we're going to need to model a higher behavior standard that will feed into everything AI learns and into their actions not to avoid catastrophes. We'll also need to create a higher behavior wall against the bad actors through minimizing violence and through a new system of justice and penance. So Dave, let's transition to our second thought-provoking article for our chat today. Also from the New York Times, published September 24 of 2023. It's called Being There by writer David French, who writes, I want to begin this column by sharing with you one of the worst things I ever did. I was only 18 years old, but that was no excuse. Late one night, I got a call from a close friend who said, my dad's on the way to the hospital. It's really bad. His voice was shaking. I was shocked. I didn't know what to say. More important, I didn't know what to do. I told my friend that I was so sorry. I told him I'd pray for him. And then I went to sleep. I called my friend the next morning. No answer. I asked around. He was at the hospital. The same pattern repeated for two long days. I would call. No answer. I'd ask about him and find out he was at the hospital. But I didn't go. To this day, I cannot replicate the thought processes that kept me away. I remember feeling some irrational confidence that his father would be fine. And I remember being busy. I remember feeling not quite prepared to face such pain and loss. Then I got a call. My friend's father had died. I did go to the visitation. I knew at the very least that's what friends do. What happened next is burned into my heart. When I walked in the door at the visitation, my friend came up to me. He looked at me with immense hurt and he said, where were you? I had no answer for him then. I have no answer now. I failed and the older I get, the better I understand the magnitude of my failure. I had violated the first commandment of friendship, which is presence. Simply being there was all that had been required, and I couldn't pass even that one simple test. Lee, before going on with David French's story, uh, his words and his example and storytelling here just remind me of the power of being present. And sometimes we, you know, that means different things to different people, but it can be just listening and it can be being there in silence. And I think lots of times we have a tendency to think of friendship as talking to each other and fixing things yes. and, you know, working out something together. And when examples hit us, when it doesn't look like that or that's not required or wouldn't be helpful, we don't know what to do. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be active. It can be passive. It can just be there. Yeah. So continuing on with David's article, Last week, I read a poignant piece arguing that the male loneliness epidemic was afflicting a surprising group, American fathers. In one sense, these were men who were surrounded by love. They were typically married. They had children. Yet they still felt alone. They struggled to make friends. The longer we march through these anxious, sad, and divided times, the more I'm convinced that the bigger story, the story behind the story of our bitter divisions and furious conflicts, is our loss of belonging, our escalating loneliness. And one of the markers is the extraordinary decline of friendship. According to an American Perspective survey between 1990 and 2021, the percentage of Americans reporting that they had no close friends at all quadrupled. 
For men, the number had risen to 15%. Almost half of all Americans surveyed reported having three close friends or fewer. And Lee, I wonder just with this phrase here, you know, if some of the mile markers that suggest that a friend is a close friend, I wonder if some of those have changed mm-hmm. over time mm-hmm. that 20 or 30 years ago and back, you know, who was your close friend? Well, these things happened, this limited number of things happened, yes. or you did these things. And in our world where choices and options are have multiplied mm-hmm. so much, has even the definition of what makes a friend a close friend, is that is that kind of murky to us? Yeah, I think it is. Now? We don't know. Right. Let me take Facebook as an example here. And I don't mean this to be derogatory or demeaning in any fashion. When you connect with some someone through Facebook or another social media platform, what are we doing? We're friending them. There was actually a verb created 20 years ago. I friended you. That was never friendship. That was just being connected through some social platform. And there's been a lot of research done over the last several years that say people may have 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 connections through a social media platform, and those same people will report they have no friends. And I think there's, to exactly your example, a disappointment Yes, that happens, whereas you're oh, yeah. having things in your life. Where are those hundreds of people? Right. Well, they're not right there. No, they're not. They're not right there. So then, okay, who are my friends? Mm-hmm. And I think your example yeah. spot The on. definition of friendship is evolving. Yeah. So back to David's article, the statistics raise the question, why? I'd suggest that a big part of the answer lies in the story I told above. Ever since I've started thinking and writing about America's loss of belonging, I've been asking people what virtue they value most in a friend. I've asked people who are religious and secular, white-collar and blue-collar, men and women, black and white, and it's remarkable how often the answer boils down to the single virtue I mentioned above of presence, of being there. And I think, too, Lee, the one thing that I would add to that is presence and being there really in a friendship is reciprocal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's... Uh, you're my friend because you're there for me. I'm your friend because I'm there for you. That's right. And for somebody to really identify a friendship as a close friendship over time, there has to be some reciprocity. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. And it has to be outside the boundaries of roles that you're in Mm -hmm. and work or in power systems. And it has to be a situation where we can be who we really are. We're not in a work role where our truest, honest self And it's reciprocal. We each share that with each other, and we're there for each other. Well, back to the article. Time and again, I hear versions of this answer. One that grows more salient the longer you live and the greater the headwinds you face. Quote, a friend is there when you need him. A friend picks up the phone when you call at 2 a.m. A friend stands with you. The temptation of absence destroys the virtue of presence. And that absence, as I showed as a younger man need not come through shocking neglect or selfishness. It can occur simply because you're busy. I've seen it with my own eyes. Most Americans make their close friends through work. So what happens when friends change jobs and they're suddenly just gone? Do you see what the friendships are that have developed beyond work roles to something more meaningful, reciprocal, and permanent? Love takes time, and guess what? So do friendships. And we need to have, I think, new experiences together. 
uh, being able to have really deep, real chats, visits, and not just the, what you been doing? Yeah. What you been up to? Well, yeah. let's just, let's give this quick update to each other. But are we talking about something more real that we can talk about because of our friendship or are we creating new experiences mm-hmm. together? Mm-hmm. And I think over time, if, if one or both of those things aren't happening, the friend, the sense of friendship or certainly close friendship starts kind of falling off the table. It can diminish. Yeah. 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 So back to his article, there are times too when friends can almost seem to disappear owing to parenthood, especially if their kids play sports or engaged in extracurricular activities. Quote, this summer is rough for me. Travel soccer is destroying our calendar. And yes, you often make friends with other parents while you watch your kids play. But next year, your child might be on a new team with new parents around and all the parent friends you just made are suddenly gone. I've never met a person who wants to lose friends, but I've met many, many people who suffer from loneliness and say that they just, quote, lost touch. What happened? I ask. Life happened, they say. At each new stage of life, it was easier to say no to a friend than to say no to work, to a spouse, to one's kids. And while each individual know can be understandable and even justifiable. The accumulation of no's suffocates friendships, even without an argument, a breach, or a betrayal. Mm. And Lee, this conjures up to me this notion of life stages a little bit that we all experience. We all, we all have different stages of our life. Mm-hmm. And friendships can cool off, either temporarily or permanently, or certainly need to be reset. Yes, in an almost formal way yes. when one or both parties go to a new life stage. And there's not a lot of rule books on how to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But if you don't do that, again, things start sliding off the table or people can really get their feelings hurt because things aren't the way they were before. That's exactly right. Yeah. So during the early COVID-19 pandemic, when Zoom calls were a brand new thing to many of us, says French, I received an unusual invitation from a reader who wrote that he and his old college friends all read me and would I mind joining one of their weekly Zooms? Well, it sounded kind of fun, so I said yes. When I joined, I was struck by the obvious joy of their friendship, the inside jokes, and the easy camaraderie. They were much younger than me, in their 30s, and before we signed off, they asked if I had any last thoughts. Stay together, I told them. It's going to get hard. Your kids are young. Your careers are just starting to take off, but stay together. Be there even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient. After I got the call, I kicked myself for not remembering a quote by C.S. Lewis, which says, Friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, for God did not need to create. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. And Lee, I think uh, I, I would agree to a great degree. I would agree to a great degree with David on his point about making attempts to stay together. But I guess also I would add to that extent that life stages are going to happen. And they're part of us growing and developing and becoming full human beings. And that does yes. have an impact on friendship. I think it's important to for people to, and particularly as adults, who are just meeting people to have skills mm-hmm. on how to meet people. Yes. And how to 
say, have to take that leap and say, you know, it would be interesting to go be a friend with you, or mm-hmm. can we go get coffee together, or can mm-hmm. we go uh, see if if there's the potential for a friendship? And I think there's great reluctance mm-hmm. to make that leap. What if you get rejected? Right. What if somebody looks at you like you have three heads and goes, <laughs> why are you... Why would I go to coffee with you? Why are you doing that? What's your hidden agenda? Yeah, there must be some other reason than just potentially wanting to be my friend. And I think we have to absolutely make sure that adults are equipped with those skills. And it's, it's in our culture, too. Yes, yeah. And it's also fine for somebody to go, uh, gee, I might like to, but I'm busy. Right. That, I can't, that, that is okay. It's okay. I can't fit that in I right now. I can't fit that That's in. okay. Or, you know, I, I've kind of got enough of that. And, <laughs> and to try not to have hurt feelings yes. over that and move on and find somebody else. Yep. So as we're talking about reaching out and perhaps cultivating new friendships, here's something to keep in mind. Uh, we need to be really great stewards of the limited time in our lives, right? Both in our actions and reactions. Time is our greatest and most impactful life currency. Mm. So we should be mindful about how we spend that. And we would advocate creating lasting friendships and new friendships and perhaps letting go of old, all of those are worthy. Absolutely. So our third and last thought-provoking article for today is titled, Modern Masculinity is Broken. She knows how to fix it. This too is from a recent New York Times article, and it is an interview that David Marquesa conducted with Caitlin Moran. Quote, With the arrival of her part memoir, part manifesto, How to Be a Woman, in 2011, Caitlin Moran established herself as one of her generation's funniest and most fearless feminist voices. She has a new book now, What About Men? Moran turns her eye to what she sees as the limited and limiting discussions around modern masculinity. It is a book she felt duty-bound to write. She says... All the women that I know on similar platforms were out there mentoring young girls and signing petitions and looking after the younglings. The men of my generation with the same platforms have not done that. They are not having a conversation about young men. So given that none of them have written a book that addresses this, Muggins here is going to do it. I love that. (laughs) Muggins here. So uh, the interview question begins with, Part of the framing of your book is that there's not enough discussion about young men struggling to adapt to changing ideas about masculinity. I feel as if that's a big topic of conversation these days. So what's the fresh thinking that you're bringing to it? Caitlin answers, feminism has a stated objective, which is the political, social, sexual, and economic equality of women. With men, there isn't an objective or an aim. Because there isn't, what I have observed is that the stuff that is getting the most currency is on the conservative side. Men going, our lives have gotten materially worse since women started asking for equality. We need to reset the clock. We need to have power over women again. We're talking about the problems of women and girls at a much higher level than we are about boys and men. We need to identify the problems and work out what we want the future to look like for men in a way that women have already done for themselves. And Lee, pausing here for a second, I think uh, what comes to mind to me is our notion of equality for all. Mm -hmm. And we're the same and we're unique and that we each have a unique blend of gifts, talents, and skills. And I, I am absolutely all about 
equality for women and everybody else. Mm -hmm. I think I sometimes have a concern that we're trying to establish a new order or set of expectations for women and a new order and expectations for men. And I just ask the question, why aren't they the same? Yeah, or why, for, sh why should they be separate? Or for any other gender identity right. that exists. Yeah, right. And so uh, I think that is coming from me, mm -hmm. who has historically been in a privileged mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. And so I want to recognize that. But I, so I, at the same time, would go, there's certainly some steps that could be made where men could do some things differently, and those could be identified. So I'm not in any fashion Certainly. neglecting the conversation here. I just think out there we have to have equality for everyone, and it needs to be simple. Yes. You know, and everybody's unique. Yes. My point of view. Yeah, very well said. So back to our interview. The interviewer asks Caitlin the following, what should the future look like for men? And she responds... Well, it feels that every so often a book about men comes out and a small conversation flares up and the conclusion usually is it's a thing you should sort out yourselves, men. And there's no sense of a continuing conversation of there being a new pantheon of men being invented all the time. When we invent a new kind of woman or a new way of talking about women, it gets quickly absorbed into the mainstream. Whereas in the male conversation, it doesn't feel like something that spreads out across other genres. It sort of happens in isolation. But my book is going, I can see what is happening in women's lives and how it has benefited us. There is something equivalent that you men can do. Why don't you give it a go? Men on the liberal left, while feminism was having this massive movement, they were like, okay, we're not going to start talking about men while this is happening. So they sat it out for a decade, and now their sons have grown up in an era where they have heard people go, typical straight white men, toxic masculinity. And those sons are like, blank this, because they don't see what a recent corrective feminism is to thousands of years of patriarchy. They have only ever known people saying, the future is female. So they are quite rightly going, who's going to say something good about the men? And Lee, I would say that uh, obviously men are not de facto bad. Okay, patriarchy, on the other hand, is certainly an inferior and destructive system in our world. And that's what the world has been living with. Yes. And so, again, we would say let's make corrections along the way. But ultimately, men and women and every gender identity both need equality and the right and freedom to explore their unique individuality. Our point of view. Okay, so interviewer says, what's an idea that people are afraid to talk about more openly? And Caitlin says, trans issues. In the UK, you were seen to be on one of two sides. It's the idea that you could be a centrist and talk about it in a relaxed, humorous, humane way that didn't involve two groups of adults tearing each other to pieces on the internet. The interviewer continues, research on Gen Z attitudes suggests that they're more open to gender fluidity than older generations. What are the implications of that for how we understand masculinity moving forward? And she says, I can walk around leafy liberal North London and see boys in dresses with nail polish who are using mixed pronouns and go, look at the progress here. On the other hand, as soon as I go back to my hometown, I am not seeing boys walking around in sarongs and using mixed pronouns. 
In those places, you would be going straight in at the deep end by starting a conversation about masculinity by going, maybe gender shouldn't exist. It's better to start, which is why I've been general in this book, with a sketch of masculinity that people in normal towns who haven't gone to amazing schools and don't read fancy books would recognize. Then you can lead into, hey, why don't we all be David Bowie? (laughs) I just love that. That's great. And I think her explanation at the end says that she she may very well have the point of view that Lee and I have been describing in our asides, but she's like kind of going, there's steps to that. Yes. And uh, we believe in both. You know, we have this notion of pictures where you establish this mile marker that's out there in the distance that is kind of close to perfection. And we believe you have to do that to make any progress. Mm-hmm. We also believe that things are incremental, mm-hmm. you know, and that we're all about incremental progress. If Absolutely. If steps, hey, we just do our part, right? We say that over and over again. And so we believe in all of it, all of it, the long term. And again, those incremental steps. Absolutely. So here's a quote from Mark Twain of whom we are big fans, which I think puts a nice cap on this discussion. It's about Twain on being in the majority. He wrote, whenever you find yourself in the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. I really, really like that. It's almost akin to those who want power are probably the ones who should not have it, right? So whenever you find yourself in the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. Great wisdom from Mark Twain. We like to close with a moment of optimism, momentum and gratitude, and we do so today in these words. We are so grateful for the wisdom and simplicity of the golden rule. While as a species, we have never come close to actually living by it, it has still been a wonderful North Star for human behavior that has helped us get to this point. Going forward, we need to expand the golden rule's meaning and use it to all forms of life, and we need to work harder than ever in making it a reality in our world and in our future. In closing, we ask, what are your ideals? What are your pictures? What are your actions to take? And what is your influence to use? Thank you for listening. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. As always, feel free to explore more about Pictures Out There at picturesoutthere.com and major social media sites. We hope you have the day of your dreams, the day of your pictures.